Welcome back to the first episode of the year 2023. Colin, Happy New Year. How are you doing? Doing well, Johnny. Happy New Year to you. Likewise. And I think if our listeners remember our last episode of 2022, we finished it with a a semi-serious topic around Colin and his new product invention, Pancake Mix. And we were joking about what would it take to put it together, package it up, and start selling it out of your apartment. And Colin, instead of actually trying this out and seeing all the places we would fail, we've decided to have as our first guest of the year, Andrew from Flourish Pancakes, who is an expert in this. He's actually done this. He's created his own pancake mix and packaged it up and is selling in grocery stores and online right now. So we figured to bring him on and talk to him and learn everything about starting your own pancake mix company. Andrew, welcome to Bricks and Clicks. We're excited to talk with you. What's going on, guys? It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and a little more color on our conversation at the end of our last episode, just at the end of 2022. We were doing a what's in your pantry. So sometimes we do an episode where we just grab an item from the pantry and we don't say what it is and we kind of try and guess what it is. And then we talk about the brand and what we like and don't like and cool things they're doing. And uh, I really tried to throw a curveball and I grabbed a jar of uh, pancake mix that I had mixed up just to avoid having to do it before I make the pancakes. And the conversation was like, well, this seemed easy. I wonder what it would take to sell this as a CPG product, more as an exercise to learn, like, what do you need to do to successfully, like, take something that is pancake mix, like everyone can make pancake mix and turn it into a really successful brand, like finding your niche. And and so, yeah, Andrew, we're super excited to talk to you today in part to learn what are the things that were really hard when you were getting going and like, how did you overcome those challenges and, and how are you guys able to really carve out a space in pancake mix, which is not a new product by any means. Yeah. I'm not giving any insider information to you, Colin. I don't really believe ah. in healthy competition. So <laughs> I'm only answering questions from Johnny from here on out. But yeah, man, it, it's interesting because it's a sector where there are a lot of local competitors. So everywhere that you go in pancake mix, if you're looking at New York data or Ontario data, whatever it might be, you're always going to find three or four or five brands that are going to just be local regional brands that are getting into those stores. And that does take up a little bit of space on shelf. However, I think like any CPG product, whether it is rocket science or just milling flour and and putting it in a bag, the hardest part is building the brand and actually getting it on shelf and then getting it off shelf and managing all the moving parts in between. And the grass is always greener. Like you're going to meet manufacturing guys who wish that they had a brand because they hate running their facility. You're going to meet guys with a brand who wish they had a manufacturing facility because they hate paying the tolling fees and having co-packers. And the thing about our business that we all share in, in common is that it's just such a long, complicated supply chain. And although something may be easy to make, which I don't actually think pancake mix is easy to make, it's, it is actually a pretty complex supply chain. That's always the problem. And then growing the brand makes it even tougher, right? So just just stay out of my way, Colin, <laughs> and go into into something else. No worries there. You mentioned that the brand side is is so important. And that's like, that definitely was one of the things we mentioned, like, yeah, finding that differentiation. You've done this many times, right? Like you have started many brands. We were doing research. This was like your 25, 25th enterprise. So you have a lot of experience in that area, which is probably why you guys are succeeding. Could you tell us a little bit like, yeah, about yourself and how, how you got to this 25th enterprise and just a little bit of the brand creation story there. Yeah, it, it feels more like my second or third because in the 20, in the first 24, there's a lot of small little things that I was doing. So humbly, 25 is a nice number, but it's the story has more context than that. So I started in e-com 
I think about eight years ago, I was 19 years old and I started my first e-com store. I was really into in-person sales. I used to work at a clothing store. I loved selling people. I loved kind of like working a room, all that good stuff and getting commission back at the end of the day. And I felt like e-commerce, which if you can think back eight years ago, there was like this rise of the influencer, this rise of Facebook advertising, chronological timeline on Instagram, drop shipping, ebooks, all of these things were happening. It was kind of like this groundswell for e-com entrepreneurs. And I felt like this is like me working at my local clothing store, but I get to do it to everybody in the world. I'm going to start selling products wherever I can, right? So I opened my first drop shipping store when I was 19. And it was a pretty good success for a 19-year-old. It's not something that you'd be calling a VC about, but for my age, it was pretty good. You know, it put some money in my pocket. It cost me some money where I got to kind of learn my advertising chops, my brand chops. And then from there, like the chaotic person that I am, I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a lab. I said, if I can do this once, I can do this a hundred times. So I started what's kind of like a venture lab. I was way too cocky. We had no planning. So I was kind of just looking for products, starting something up, bringing in a marketer. And I had never really chosen a sector. Right. So I did that for about four years. And in that time, we started and scaled about 24 e-commerce stores in four years. At the height of it, we had 16 marketers running 16 active stores alongside myself. And we were spending a, a pretty penny on ads, but there was two things kind of going on. So one, I was super unhealthy. I was eating, I basically say I was eating out of a wrapper, right? So I was going to a Tim Hortons, I was going to Starbucks, I was eating every yeah. single meal out of the house. I was living on my own, didn't really know how to, how to do much, how to take care of myself. So Tim Hortons replaced my mom's home cooking and yeah. I wasn't getting the salad with chicken. So I was super unhealthy. I've always had a sweet tooth and I felt like there was an opportunity in, in the health food space. And the other thing was in drop shipping, businesses are like a flash in the pan, right? It could be there one day, gone the next. It was a super stressful business, but also just from just ethically, it didn't feel right selling a product that I didn't have complete control over or everyone bought from a store that takes 45 days to ship because it's some, it's some drop shipping store. Like we were running those stores and, and honestly, we were trying to land product in Canada and the US so that the shipping would be quick. But in the early days, it's really tough to get around that stuff. So I kind of had this ethical realization and this this health and wellness problem and, and that kind of combined to start Flourish as my 25th e-com store. And yeah, that was basically day one. We pre-launched for a few months and May 28th, 2018, we sold our first bag. Wow. That's, that's great. Sounds like you started a lab for trying to find good products, but you ended up building a lab on how to do brand marketing. Yeah, advertising pretty much. I don't, I don't call yeah. it marketing anymore. I've learned how much more complex marketing is. I, I'm not a marketer. I'm an advertiser. I need help yeah. on the marketing side a lot of the times. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so the, you mentioned another thing in the pancake world, you have these kind of regional brands. Like when I start my pancake mix, I guess I will I'll just stop at a regional brand so we don't have to compete too much. You guys are not that, right? You are, you're a national brand in Canada, and I know you, you're making inroads in the U.S. What did that look like for you, like finding the right distributors to actually get the distribution in all of Canada? And then now, I guess you're, you're taking a run at the U.S. distribution, and I know we're all going to Expo West. So that's yeah. probably an integral part of that. But yeah, can you tell us a little about your distribution and how you built that out? Yeah. So we made a lot of mistakes along the way, you know, like considering, like I said, we started in 2018, right? A, a few months after that, we met our first investor and she said, if you want this to succeed, it, it needs to be omni-channel. I said, yeah, definitely. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I went home and I Googled what is omni-channel <laughs> and I found out that I needed to be in stores. So like I was completely green to retail, right? So in Canada, yeah. we made a lot of mistakes. 
I have this advisor who has a really great line. He says, people want to work with me because I've made millions of mistakes with millions of dollars of other people's money. Thankfully, I didn't have to make millions of mistakes yet because I've had a really good team around me, but we've learned a lot along the way. And what we're doing in the States is definitely different than what we're doing in Canada. But in Canada, I did what every other person would do. I tried to use my personal network. My first store was Nature's Emporium, which is four chains in the town that I'm from in Vaughan. Then we moved to Longo's. And then from Longo's, we moved to Sobeys, which is a national retailer. And it was weird because a lot of brands will talk about having this nucleus, right? And building out from this nucleus of, of Vaughan to Ontario to Quebec, and then all the way coast to coast, right? But in Canada, because we have such a consolidated market with Metro Sobeys and Loblaws, and then I guess Costco being the only ones really playing in club, it's hard to stay off national shelves if you're in any of those retailers. So very early on, we were spread across the country. Most of our business was actually out west in Vancouver, where until CHFA, I, I had never even been. So Canada was a little bit different. It was a shotgun approach. We have a product that people really resonated with. And I think leading with e-commerce really helped us build that brand awareness and velocity. So that's always been a big part of my strategy and it continues to be a part of my strategy today. But then in the US, we got a little bit cocky, right? So <laughs> we thought that what was going to happen in Canada was going to happen in the States. And instead of learning our lesson from that nucleus, we thought that lightning was going to strike twice. So we picked three states to focus on California, New York, and Texas. And the U.S. is just way harder when it comes to distribution. And it actually comes down to the way that the distributor warehouses your product is so much different than the way that they buy inventory and warehouse your product in Canada. So those are lessons that over the last year where we've been growing in the States, we've had to learn the hard way. So right now we're sitting at just under a thousand stores in the U.S., about 4,000 stores in Canada. So in Canada, we're a 10-minute drive from 90% of Canadians, second largest pancake mix in terms of market share. And in the US, we're a very, very, very small speck of dust startup that we're trying to grow. Great. So one thing, I want to go back to the beginning when you said you got into Nature's Emporium first, right? So a four-store yeah. chain in Vaughn, and then you went to Longo's. You kind of glossed over that. To me, that seems like a very big step, right? Because Longo's is a very traditional grocery store in Ontario. What was the key? Like, how did you do that? Like, how many calls did it take? Was it one call, five calls? What was kind of the key of getting into Longos? Because to me, that's a, that's a pretty big deal as a starting up when you're only in four stores. What did that look like? Yeah, so I was a pretty persistent guy. Um, yeah. The Longos head office is just down the street from where nice. I live. So I was driving by it all the time. And uh, I went and I met with my buyer and I just did what I always do. I just, as a good salesperson, just sat there and listened. So honestly, it just took me going in there a lot, seeing if the person, if the buyer was there. I didn't have a distributor at the time. I didn't have a broker at the time. I actually, in Canada, I haven't had a broker until a year ago when we signed Propel. So we've done pretty much all of Canada without a broker, although I, I wouldn't really recommend that. No. So I was kind of just, you know, figuring it out and... Same thing like with my investor telling me to go omni-channel, my buyer asked me if I could be DSD in yeah. the first meeting that I had with Longos. And I was like, sorry, I don't know what DSD is. And she was like, DSD. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, sorry, I don't know. And then she was like, you can't go DSD. And at one point I was like, you know, if you just keep saying the acronym, I'm not really going to know what it means. <laughs> I've only been in this business for six months. She said, she didn't even tell me what it meant. She was like, okay, call a distributor and hire them. And when you have a distributor, call me back and we'll list your product. And that's how we got our first distributor. And I was like, guys, I still don't know what DSD is, but I need your help. <laughs> I wonder uh, if she knew what DSD was. That <laughs> that's what I'm thinking, right? Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe she didn't know. No, she was really, so really experienced. Uh, she, she, yeah. was, uh, she was a staple at Longo's. So. Were you quoting like velocity metrics from Nature's Emporium or online? Like, 
We had we, no data. Got it. All we did was we would go into a store in the, in the really early days, like somewhere when you're targeting a place that has four stores, 30 stores, yeah. you can't do this to Longos. But I can tell you based on my e-commerce data, like Johnny, your store at Weston and Rutherford, I have 5,000 people who have purchased in the last 45 days that live within a 10 mile radius or 10 kilometer radius of your store. Yeah. So we would be doing things like that, right? I would say, hey, nice. Longos, your best store. I have a cluster of people who live there. And at the time, they actually had one of our American competitors on shelf whose brand, unfortunately, doesn't exist anymore. And that brand was moving 1.2 units per week per store. In our first week in 30 Longos, I think we moved, it was a three-digit number. It was 100 and something units per week per store. Oh my God. Because wow. we just basically had all of our e-commerce customers. I used to have it in my sales deck. All of our e-commerce customers flooding to Longos. I have a big Italian family. All of my aunts and uncles went there and, and bought product. So did you use your consumer base online and let them all know, hey, we're now in Longos as part of your yeah. strategy there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was all social and email blasts. And then, like I said, my uncle had to go there. He, he picked up an entire shipper and put it in his car. <laughs> shipper had 36 units in it, $360. A pancake mix. So, you know, you got to get help from the people around you. I think that that's a constant and you got to be scrappy. And when you have something good, like business is like a gamble, right? When you have a really good hand, you kind of have to go all in. The only difference is that when you're a business owner, sometimes it can feel like you're going in all, all in every single day and it, it does get tough. But if you see the light at the end of the tunnel and you know that the dream is bigger than the pain, I think it allows you to kind of move forward. Absolutely. We're going to take a pause here and then we'll come back with some more questions to Andrew. All right, we're back. So Andrew, you mentioned when you talked about you're in Canada, you're in a national distribution there across the, the big retailers and you've gone into the United States and it's been a struggle. So what are the big differences? You alluded to how distributors warehouse their product. Can you maybe go into that into a little more detail to any brands that are in Canada and they're trying to go in the United States, lessons that you've learned that you can pass along just like you've learned from your advisors? Yeah, for sure. I think in the U.S., some of the easy stuff is there's 10 times more people. So velocity, yeah. we haven't had any trouble with velocities. We still have in the stores that we're in a lot of top 10 SKUs like Central Market. We're, I think, in their top three best selling pancake mixes. So it is possible to break in to those places. However, the main difference that I've noticed, and, and this might be a little bit too detailed. So if we got to break anything down. We love, we love this stuff. So we're going to enjoy it. Regardless. You guys, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll yeah, yeah, yeah. Out here. <laughs> so let's say in Canada, you would have somebody like Tree of Life, right? They have three branches across the country, like Mississauga, Atlantic, and West. And they, somebody lists your product. They're going to buy product and put it in those DCs and probably carry about three or four months of inventory for a forecast of, you know, 100 stores, two units per week per SKU, three SKUs. They're going to put all that into their warehouse. In the U.S., it's more similar to a crosstalk program than a distribution program. So you also need to think Kehi is going to have, or UNFI or any distributor is going to have a hundred times more SKUs than yeah. Tree of Life. And not only do they have a hundred times more SKUs, but they have 10 or 20 times more DCs. So then what happens there is that, that basically puts them in a position where they can't warehouse a lot of product for any one brand, unless it's moving a lot or it's in a really big chain. So they'll call this forecast selling or forecast buying. So let's say you launch into Kroger, right? Kroger is an easy one. They know exactly how much pancake mix Kroger is going to move. They can easily forecast buy. They don't want to upset Kroger. They will put a ton of inventory into their warehouses to satisfy Kroger. However, 
nobody launches in Kroger. <laughs> Everybody launches in the little guys first, right? You need your natural yeah. independent stores. You need those nature's emporiums where you could say, it's easy for me to drive traffic to this one store, right? That's, that's the way to do it. And you're building out region by region. So when you get into Johnny's market, let's say in New York, the problem is if there's one, two, 10, 30, 50 stores, sometimes even 100 or 200 stores, they're not moving enough volume in any category, not just pancake mix. They're not moving enough volume for forecast selling. So what will happen is Kehi will bring in a decent opening order, but then the people who work at Johnny's Market have to go to the shelf and reorder every single time. And what happens is as inventory starts to diminish and people stop getting their orders, what we call shorts, they'll just rip your tag off shelf and you'll basically cease to exist, right? So yeah. it's actually this really cool sprint that has to happen in the States. So it's get Johnny's market. And then in the next three or four months, you need to tack on another 100 stores, 200 stores by getting Collins market and Andrew's market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you need to blitz that really hard so that Kiki can start forecast buying for you. We learned this lesson as we started fulfilling inventory on time and in full to Kiki when they would send us a PO, but then we would go look at our dashboard where we would see shorts, right? And we would call them and say, hey, why, when we ship in full, why are we sending out 30% of an order? But the problem is when that guy orders, Kehi puts in an order three weeks later, I ship it three weeks later, it arrives three weeks to their DC. The guy gets one case of pancake mix 10 weeks after he ordered it. He didn't even know that he ordered that or that it even existed in his store. So that's kind of the like nuance of the US market, which is way different than Canada. In Canada, you know, Tree of Life is going to have warehouse space. They're going to pick up small orders. You're usually shipping from Canada into Canada, whereas in the States, you're going to ship from Canada to the U.S. to your distributor. So it just lengthens that crappy supply chain that we talked about. Yeah, that's uh, I didn't realize that was not the case in Canada. Like we work in the U.S., so that's that's a little more familiar, at least to Johnny and myself. But yeah, I didn't realize how, I guess, easier it is. It could maybe not easy, not that easy, but a little easier in Canada. I know like Kehi Unify, I think the number is like 20 stores. If you have 20 stores, they'll open up a D.C. for you. Mm-hmm. But like you said, you got to get 100 because 20 stores is not enough to keep it's that DC scale. open. So that sprint is is real. And most a lot of brands we work with, the game is is usually to find like the central market or like the large retailer in mm-hmm. the region. Because when you do it the Johnny's Market way, like you said, if you don't get the other stores, it's hard. And so like us getting Wegmans. A, uh, Wegmans, yeah. Like a Wegmans would be enough pull probably to keep that UNFI slot for you. And Wagman's also submits their forecasts to UNFI. Yeah. So it's like you have someone else doing your forecasting. Yeah. Because we also see this with UNFI and Kehi. They have so many products to forecast that mm-hmm. they can't do a good job of every single one. And it often just falls to the manufacturer to like, you got to submit the forecast, call up UNFI and Kehi, try and get someone who can like bump those forecasts up and down for yeah, coming please weeks. Please order from me. Yeah. You've got to feed them the information. Like, I know this is coming. You got to order this. That's a lot. Are you going to go to get an Airbnb in Texas beside the Whole Foods headquarters? <laughs> Fly do your family down. What you did with your first market? Just go there every day to get in? It's it's funny because I've actually said that to my VP of sales before. And Anna Maria, if you're listening, my Whole Foods buyer, she was our Canadian Whole Foods buyer for Pancake Mix, and she actually moved to the U.S. global office. So I'm just going to yeah. like sit outside their office and wave my Canadian flag. I was doing a wave. People are just listening. I guess aren't going to be able to see this. I was just waving. I should sit outside their office and do that and write her name in really big letters. The first time I presented anything to Whole Foods with one of the brands we work with was to Anna Maria in the Texas okay. headquarters. She was new and global. Yeah. Uh, yeah, cool. Tell her to call I, me. I don't think she'd remember Please. me. Otherwise, I'd call her. But Yeah. <laughs> 
please call. She might not like me either because we were presenting a, I think it was a price increase. So those aren't Oof. the fun ones. That's well, a call. Bring good. in Colin yeah, for just, the for the bad news. The price increase. Yeah, we news. just went through that. It's definitely tough, but it was 100% justified, right? Especially, of course. Like, we didn't take price for four years. And when everyone started in 2020, we weren't taking price. But then eventually we just, we had to. And we put in a pretty big price increase. It was it was tough, but it had to happen. Speaking of like buyers, what's your plan for Expo West? Are you attending? Are you going to show up? We're going to have a booth, walk the floor. Are you? Yeah. What's what's going on there? What are you thinking? Uh, yeah, we're flying in. We have a team of four coming down with us. It's going to be me, ops manager Emma, who you guys know, who set this up, and our VP of sales. And we have just a little ten by ten. And awesome. uh, we're, we're flipping pancakes and, and letting people come by and try all the good stuff that we have. We're going to try to make as much noise as possible. I think we're beside some of the other Canadian boys, Midday Squares and Queen Street Bakery. Great. So, you know, we're going to be loud. And I actually don't know what aisle we're in. Actually, we're in Hall E. So I think we're exhibiting e. in, the, in the front half of the show. Yeah. But I don't know what our booth number is right now. So off the top of my head, but, but we'll be there. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're probably going to be testing some of our new products, which I won't talk about here. Cause if you want to yeah. try them, you got to come by the booth, but I'm our metric right now, honestly, is we're very data driven by the way. So uh, I'm Great. a huge nerd. hand out sample bags. Like how many, how many samples can we get into people's hands? VIP samples, which we're talking about like totes, merch, spatulas, products, full bags, and then buyer meetings, right? Buyer so meetings. Good. we're, Good. we're trying to meet 30 buyers there. And by me, even just a, hey, how are you? Here's my sell sheet. Please, please, please call when I, please, please, please pick up when I call. It's really tough out there. And it's it's tough to make yourself a differentiator. And I think the tailwind for us is that some parts of our category are declining and we're still growing. So I think this is going to be a really, really strong show for us. Yeah. How about um, brokers? Are you guys also looking for those? Or are you guys all uh, buttoned up on the broker side in the US right now? Yeah, all buttoned up on the broker side. We're hiring internally for sure. We're still a really small team. We want to bring on a U.S. sales manager, product innovation, some more marketing support. We are hiring uh, anything and everything right now. We've been a team of four for the last wow. four years, and I only hired people after a year in. So uh, now today we're a team of 10. So we've been on a hiring spree and we're still going. And one last question, because I have to ask it, is around your trade strategy. So what's your plan? How do you set your trade stra strategy around pricing? You mentioned you took a price increase. And I think you published it on your website too. Okay, like, mm -hmm. hey, we're doing this, which is which is awesome. And then more so from a merchandising perspective, what are you looking at? How do you set that trade strategy? Yeah, so honestly, for us, we're still in the experimentation stage. Yeah. You know, we're trying to figure out how to optimize trade for being a dollar off, being $2 off, $3 off, trying to check the lift. You need years and years of data to do that because you need to compare throughout seasons and things like that. So talking about trade, just the aspect of promo, we're, we're still trying to figure it out. We're not a heavy discount brand. We're not a high, low strategy. So our product we believe is priced very fair for the cost of the ingredients that we have in the bag. It's super expensive to use single source protein like whey, which is one of the most expensive sources of protein. So I'm actually just moving most of my dollars into demo and samples and trying to just get food in people's mouths. What we see, and I think I'm going to actually pass this back to you guys. So what we see in our data is that Flourish has a very, very high brand loyalty rate. We have a 98% brand loyalty rate in Canadian grocery. So if you buy a bag of Flourish, 98% chance you don't buy anybody else's product for the next 12 months. That to me, that tells me that I don't have a retention problem. I have a trial problem, right? I trial just need problem. to increase trial. So aside from samples, you know, how can we use trade to actually bolster that strategy? And I'm, I'm going to flip it back. 
So a first thing I think trade around discounting, getting that yellow tag, it's driving awareness. So when customers mm -hmm. or consumers are walking down the aisle, it sticks out. It's like, hey, I'm going to go try that. I think that's a really important, important piece of trying to get more frequency. Hey, can you do shallow TPRs? I mean, if you can get merchandising, that'd be great. That's hard to do for an up and coming brand in the United States in terms of NCAP or pallets or things that you're doing at long mm -hmm. but definitely trying to get just TPR activity, get stuff going so you can draw awareness and also use that merchandising strategy to help sell in, right? When you go talk to these retailers, say like, Hey, we're bringing this whole package. We're doing demoing. We want to do sampling. We're doing 10 weeks of a dollar off. We're willing to invest and really show them that to help with the sell in and show that you're willing to invest in the brand would really help as well. Cause that's really at the end of the day, how you're going to drive more trials being in more stores. That's the big yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. The, the more stores you're in, the more people can try your product. The fastest way to increase household penetration is to increase the number of stores you're stocked in. Yeah. And it's a, it's a catch 22 though, right? Because marketing is act like increasing velocity is actually going to help you get more stores in the long run. So in some way being hyper-focused in the, in the short term, building that sell story and let's say like a central market helps you get HEV. It's just like, we have a, we have a saying here when we speak to buyers called supersize me. So when we present a promo, we always want to offer them a supersize, right? So if, if we're in Walmart, let's say like Walmart Canada, we would never just do a TPD. We would do a TPD with PDQ and then supersize me would be, okay, could we get a discount on Walmart Connect if we're also going to participate in Walmart Connect? And we try to just really be short and fast and try to hit the consumer hard all at one point. And I know some other brands actually like to spread out their trade and will run PDQs in a certain month and TPDs in a certain month and samples in another month. I'm more of just a kind of get it over with, supersize me kind of guy and just, I want it all in one week. Yeah. yeah. Get yeah. all done on one so, week, do it four weeks a year and that's it. Or four periods a year for four weeks. Yeah. I mean, we talk about this a lot. Like distribution is the most important thing. Yes. So everything you're doing on promotion, you mentioned velocity as well. Really the promotions are not there most of the time to boost velocities. Maybe they do, but they're there to get the distribution. And maybe you get more mm. distribution because you boosted velocities, or maybe you get distribution because you participated in the big programs like you mentioned. Either way, it's two different pathways, but you're spending these trade dollars to do some things that results in distribution. And there's different paths to get to that. On the velocity part, like we, I think we've, we probably have a podcast about this in our, our earlier ones, especially where like, by and large, the velocity is what the velocity is. Like, I don't know if you know, like over time, your velocities will move a bit, but it's not like they doubled or tripled or quadrupled, especially in brick and mortar. And so those trade dollars, right, that you're going to spend is really just focus, focus on doors. You can do a little bit of velocity, but you can do a lot more by getting more doors. Well, I've seen for us trying to grow to compete against Aunt Jemima was not just a distribution play, right? Like we've grown in the largest Canadian retailer here year over year, 350% just in velocity. And we've been there now for three years. So, and that's not just when we're on trade promo, right? Like I think combining everything kind of has to work together. And mm. one of the hard parts that I have to, one of the tough things I have to wrap my head around is like, you just said, like trade spend might actually get you distribution as a small brand with not a lot of money. And as a natural product founder, where, you know, our default is that the world should be eating healthier and that buyers should be buying the healthiest products for consumers hundred percent of the time. Using trade spend to get distribution is almost like saying any brand can buy their way into a store, which is kind of sad. I don't know if I'm comfortable saying it's well, a fact of life. I'm going to say it's not true. That would make I'm, myself yeah. feel better, but. Let me modify that a bit. I don't mean go spend like a 50% trade rate to like get mm -hmm. distribution for, for 13 weeks and then get kicked out. What I mean is you have a trade budget. You've decided how much you can spend on trade. 
And then with those dollars you have, it's more about like what tactics are you allocating them to? And like you said, you choose like the demo route because you're trying to do things with those trade dollars or just drive trial. And that makes perfect sense. Or you do like the one or two big events a year instead of many small events because you want to get more awareness. And that's great. If a retailer came to you and said, hey, if you spend all of, just give me all of your trade dollars in a a net cost and I'll take you in. But if Mm -hmm. you want to do your demos, I don't want demos. So if you just want to do demos, I won't take you in. You're going to do the EDLP, right? (laughs) Yeah. Honestly. It's still a maybe for us. I don't know if we would do, I don't know. We would do an EDLP. It depends. It's in budget. It's in budget. They say, we don't want the demos, but we will take you in to our hundred stores. If you give us a 10% discount. Just take your budget and put in net cost. Yeah. Honestly, it's, it's a really tough call because there's retailers that in the States that are like all EDLP retailers and we're, yeah. Those name names. We've spoken to those retailers and it's hard because you stop protecting price. Right. But then that's also another weird phenomenon because in Canada, I'm in Costco and Walmart and Loblaws and Sobeys and all the other chains. Right. So you can kind of group like club and then discount and grocery and there'll be three totally different pricing strategies. But the country is so much smaller than the U.S. where like as soon as something happens in Costco, all the other guys are going to know right away. You got to be aware. You got to manage. And we've never actually had any of those pricing problems. So I don't know how much like price deterioration actually matters, but that's one of the stories you always hear, right? It's like, well, if you do this EDLP, Kroger's going to call and Wegman's going to, and they're all going to need a dollar off. I'm lucky that maybe we need to edit this out because I've been flying under the radar long enough. So I'm lucky that that hasn't happened to me. (laughs) But yeah, it's still a toss up for us. I think that, you know, you kind of have to try different things and different places are going to work in different regions. And I'm a strong believer of kind of like bringing on an expert in a, in a partner, like hiring a marketing agency or a service that can help or a really great team member that can help and giving that person freedom within a framework to make the decisions that they want to make. Like if, if we were working together and you, got, and you said, Andrew, we're the experts in Florida. And if you do Publix, you're going to do ABC. Unless I was totally willing to kind of give you guys total control. I don't even think it would be right for us to work together, right? And that's the way that I run partnerships that, with, with third parties. And it, But it really comes down to your net effective price. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what the plan is, right? You have a certain investment level that you can make from your gross mm-hmm. to your net, and you got to manage those dollars and you got to decide, right? Like, hey, if I'm going to give it all into EDLP and that's the only thing this customer is going to do, then that's a decision you got to make. Knowing that, hey, I'm still managing to the same NEP at Kroger or a similar one at Kroger, at H&E, yeah. at Walmart or Target. That's the key, right? You still want to have the big differences where you give like a 25% EDLC to Walmart and you're giving like a 15% discount everywhere else. Yeah, that's going to cause a lot of problems. And that's yeah. where you really have to be tight in managing that effective price across all your customers and channels. And that, that's the game, though. It's all keeping that in a reasonable bound that you can justify because you can only control that. You don't control the price at shelf. You control what you sell it to at each customer and what programs you do. Yeah. Consumers don't think that, though, obviously, right? Um, For sure. And even yeah. in these recent times, we've seen a lot of like greedflation. I've put in, I've seen retailers like on a 35% margin on our product, just to, let's make up a number, 35% retail margin. We put in a price increase and then they tack on an additional like yeah. 10 or 15%. And consumers go to the shelf and say like, oh my God, they're pissed. doubled their yeah. price or yeah. whatever. But we put in a 10% price increase and then there was like another 15 yeah. on top of that. Like that stuff happens all the time, right? So we're more Absolutely. sensitive about trying to build a really great relationship with the consumer and 
try to have the stores just as as partners, right? But it's funny to see how there's so many different strategies for retailers and like high lows, EDLPs, like premium tiers, natural only, integrated shelves with natural and conventional on the same or totally segregated stores with natural sections inside the store. And kind of like everybody finds a way to make it work, right? And that's because the brands are really like driving the business and consumers are going there for planned purchases, right? So I think at the end of the day, if we just keep being you know, good people about what we're doing and making conscious decisions with the consumer in mind, like Jeff Bezos says about yeah. Amazon. I think if we do that at the end of the day and you have a long enough time horizon to, to achieve your goal, you'll, you'll get there. And yeah, that's the right product. Taking. Have a great product too, right? At the end of the day, you got to have a good product that consumers yeah. want to eat, which it sounds like you've hit on, which is really, really exciting. Andrew, we want to thank you so much for coming on the pod and having this extended conversation. We've, we've really enjoyed it. To all our listeners, make sure you stop by and look up Flourish at Expo West. Try some pancakes. Go there for your breakfast, your first stop when that hall opens up. Andrew, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, guys, thank you thanks. so much. Listeners, if you guys want some free pancakes, reach out and let me know that you heard me on Bricks and Clicks and I'll, I'll send you a care package. Thanks, Andrew.